You're listening to a classic business podcast as heard on Classic 1027. 1027. As of Tuesday, South Africa had vaccinated over 1 million people under the Sasonki drive and the Pfizer vaccine rollout, the, the phase two. Uh, total Pfizer first doses stood at 637,801 and uh, Pfizer doses given on Tuesday uh, stood at 72,465. On Monday, uh, just a shade uh, under 75,000 doses were given and last week daily doses were mostly in the 60,000. So we're heading towards that uh, mark of 100,000 a day, a total of uh, just over 1.1 million people have uh, received a COVID-19 jab. My mom, though, registered uh, on the EBDS uh, on Mother's Day. I know because I helped her and she's still not received an SMS. Jeremy Sampson, a regular on my radio show, also registered uh, initially back in March and then again when the phase two started and is also awaiting an SMS. Well, Anne Williams, who reads the news at Classic 1027, registered and received an SMS to go to Jabalani Mall, which is roughly 20 kilometers uh, from where her house is, around the corner from Mill Park Hospital. And so there are reports of uh, some issues with the EVDS, uh, of people just walking into sites and getting the jab, uh, and a lot of confusion, I guess. Uh, what is going on out there exactly? To find out, uh, we're joined by Dr. Nicholas Crisp, Deputy Director General in the National Department of Health, who's uh, also in charge of the EVDS system. He's in the Zoom room, along with Stavros Nikolaou, who heads the Business for South Africa Health Working Group, and Professor Alex Vandenhierfer, Chair in the field of Social Security Systems Administration and Management Studies at the Witt School of Government. Uh, Dr. Crisp, firstly, how many Pfizer doses do we have in the country? Um, well, it's how many have we used and how many do we have. Uh, so we have a rolling total of around about 650,000 a week that uh, are scheduled for the next several weeks. And that has been arriving uh, according to the schedules on Sunday evenings. And I think the minister announces those every week. So what is uh, currently in stock today, uh, I wouldn't have that at my fingertips because obviously yesterday's mm. vaccination reconciliation I haven't seen. Mm. But we have enough vaccine currently in the country for the next two weeks uh, at least. And obviously what happens is that when vaccine comes in, there's a lag time before it gets distributed because it has to go through the National Control Laboratory uh, processes before it's released. But there is vaccine in the country and it is moving through the system according to plan. So uh, roughly then we have 650,000 a week at 70,000 a day. Uh, we're just over 420,000 a week. There's a gap there. And I suppose many might ask, why is there a gap? Why don't we just make it all available and uh, try and get as much as we can out as it comes in? Okay, so there's several reasons. We are getting as much out as it comes in, but when we quote doses, it's calculated on six doses per vial, and our vaccinators on the ground are telling us it's very difficult to get six doses out of a vial, and we should probably be counting on five doses a vial, especially now while it's the early stage and vaccinators are still learning to work with the vaccine. So that is, uh, you know, uh, one dose in six, that is unavoidable loss. There's always loss in a system at the end of the day with part, uh, part vials that are left as well. And vaccination sites try very hard to get people to, to use that vaccine so that it's not wasted. So that is part of the problem. The rest is in what we, we have two systems running. The one is the EVDS where we know who's being vaccinated. Um, and there are various other things that the EVDS does. But then we also have the SVS, the stock visibility system which every single 
site has to report on so that we know what vaccines in stock and we have visibility of it. And at the moment, there are still sites not reporting regularly, and there are still EBDS sites that also do not report regularly. So um, it, it is the minor number, but it's still enough for us to not be absolutely confident at any moment in time of exactly where all our, our stock is. And there's been a, a process during this week mm. uh, with very good results to try and improve that stock visibility. On the issue of the SMSs uh, that I mentioned in my introduction, uh, that's probably the most common complaint that I'm getting from individuals who registered on the EVDS system uh, and say they're just not getting their SMS and would have expected to by now, given that they registered well over a month ago. Uh, why is it taking so long? Are there delays? What's happening with that particular part of the system? Yeah, sure. So the SMSs in the beginning, in the first week, we were sending SMSs out the day before. They're now going out up to three days before. In the beginning, all the SMSs were pushed from the center, but now that the site managers and, and administrators are all trained, that is scheduled directly at the site level, and that's where the SMSs, the batches of SMSs are queued. Now, if you think that we have vaccinated a million people, we have registered close to 3.2 million people, that means there are over 2 million people in queues around the country. So some places in the country, there are no sites active. So you can't expect to get an SMS to tell you to go to a site when there's not an active site anywhere near where you work. Mm. And there are queues of people up to five or six or even more than 6,000 virtual queues where a particular site might be doing only three or 400 a day. And so as new sites are, are come online, every night during the night, people are rescheduled to queues that bring them closer and closer to the front of the queue. But there's still, until we are able to get a better pipeline of vaccines into the country, larger number of doses, we can't bring more sites online. And it means that uh, there is this delay, oh. um, which will shorten as we get a better pipeline of vaccines. I was going to ask you about the vaccine sites, uh, because that, that seems to be um, a, a key bottleneck here. And, and why we're not opening more vaccine sites? Is it just a vaccine supply issue? Yeah. Yes, so basically it's, we don't want to open a vaccine site with the administration that's involved in that site if you're not sure that you can put uh, a throughput and have the vaccines, needles, syringes and staff available to manage that site. Clearly the cold chain is more difficult to manage right to the periphery on small volumes and that presents mm -hmm. a lot of challenges to the people who manage those sites. So one has uh, got to be careful that we don't bring sites on until we know that we are able to deal with both the vaccine supply and the, the messaging to the public to come for vaccination. Now, Stavros, on the issue of uh, getting more vaccine supply into the system, uh, when will our 1.1 million J&J shots be released from Aspen's facility in Quebecer? Michael, uh, firstly, thanks very much for having me on your show again. Uh, that question is really for Johnson & Johnson to answer. Um, I think we've We've seen uh, what has been uh, put out in the public. There was uh, contamination from a site in Emergent that the FDA is currently investigating. Um, it's, it's an international regulatory issue. It's, it's unrelated to what is happening in our country. But unfortunately, until the FDA inspection is completed, which it was yesterday, and uh, the results of that inspection are released, um, it does unfortunately inadvertently affect stock levels that are destined for South Africa. 
So J and J are the ones that would have to ultimately mm. uh, give the go-ahead on regulatory approval as to what happens with uh, that inventory. Um, what we can say, however, is that J&J have worked quite hard, they've interacted with us as Business for South Africa in attempting to secure bridging stock outside of the consignments we're talking about. And um, that is something that has been actively looked at to see whether there can be bridging mm -hmm. stock brought into the country in the interim. But there are no final plans as yet around that, but that would certainly assist the situation. Because Nicholas is quite right, we are operating in a vaccine-constrained environment at this point in time. Stavros, forgive me for asking for clarity on this issue, but uh, are these vaccines, J&J &J vaccines, not manufactured here? Where did the contamination happen, or suspected contamination with the AstraZeneca vials happen? Why, why is the FDA getting involved if it's manufactured here in South Africa? So, Michael, again, this is an issue for J&J. &J. They should be responding to this, right? Um, but the, the, the simple answer, and I think J&J have communicated this, is that an international regulator has to give their approval, which would then trigger a domino approval effect, which would also cover our, our South African stock here. So it's, it's, a, it's, a it's a mechanism called the reliance model. So in other words, the FDA gives the first approval, then you have reliance on the European regulator and then ultimately reliance down to the South African regulator. So it is a domino effect, but it does all start with the FDA. And uh, um, at least uh, one would assume that there is a level of urgency here, considering the, uh, the, the shortage of vaccines in the pipeline. Uh, Alex, I want to just uh, bounce it over to you. And uh, given what we've heard so far uh, about the, uh, the system, about the constraints in terms of new vaccines in the system, has the criticism of the, the vaccine rollout so far been unwarranted? I think the, uh, all the concerns uh, arise from the kind of conversation we're having now. What, we, what we're hearing is that the actual scale of the rollout, in other words, the, the number of sites is conditional upon access to doses. And therefore, the access to doses is therefore our driving constraint. So the question is, what's the limiting factor there? And uh, are those barriers uh, uh, real? Uh, I would raise a, a question around the the so-called sort of reliance method that uh, Stavros has indicated. Um, if we're dealing with um, product from Johnson & Johnson that is to be distributed in South Africa, why do we need a US regulator to tell us what to do? So I think that it would be important to know why that became a constraint uh, for the distribution of doses in South Africa. So this is clearly a huge constraint on, uh, on the rollout program in South Africa. And currently, at a sort of monthly level with about sort of 1.25 million capacity in terms of uh, in terms of uh, vaccinations, that should be much higher. Um, and uh, if we're going to do anything, we have to get to a level where we're not basically vaccinating at 40,000 a day. My understanding is that um, the Kabecha facility can produce about a million doses a day. So if we're looking at uh, a supply constraint, it ends the moment we deal with the supply from the Kibeha facility from, uh, uh, from Aspen. And therefore, the question is, what is our supply constraint at this moment and our projection going forward? 
we should be opening more sites. It's also my understanding that a lot of the sites uh, are being restricted by Section 21A approvals, which are limiting who can actually distribute in the private sector, who can vaccinate in the private sector, and that's also quite critical to expansion. Mm -hmm. So the question really is, what is our actual projection going forward, and, uh, and why are we so constrained? It's also my understanding that Pfizer is prepared to give South Africa an additional 10 million doses, but we're not really interested. Um, we also have many uh, manufacturers, uh, many companies that are um, multinationals that are able to actually acquire and have acquired for their subsidiaries vaccines, but South Africa is preventing them from being able to distribute as well. So all of these are supply constraints which can be overcome and we can massively upscale our vaccination process if we opened it up to a, mm. a, a have a more coherent model to opening up. So mm. we, we're currently being constrained without good reason, in mm. my view. So I'm going to come back to you then, Stavros, just to get a better handle of the constraint, because it, it's still fairly fuzzy in my head why we should be relying on a, on a US regulator when we're manufacturing them in facilities in South Africa where, where SAPRO can come and give its stamp of approval considering the urgency of the vaccination rollout. Can you just uh, give us some more insight into that bottleneck at the facility? Michael, I'm not, I'm not sure that I can add much more to what I said earlier, because as I said, this is really a question that should be posed to J&J. Uh, Aspen's role is to produce the stock. It has done so. Um, it, uh, it requires regulatory approval in terms of releasing the stock. That is the purview of, of Johnson & Johnson. Um, the, the constraint is that there was, there was contaminated, potential contamination picked up at a plant in the US in Baltimore, a plant called Emergent. Emergent supplies the active substance for this product to be converted into the final vaccine product that would be administered as jabs into people's arms. And until the status of that contamination is cleared by the FDA, no further releases with that emergent API can take place. That is the issue. And until and when the FDA gives its approval, and it, uh, it, it carried out the inspection yesterday, I think that's publicly known. Um, and our own health department has said that they're expecting an outcome on Friday. So I guess we all have to wait as, as uh, inconvenient and as frustrating as it is for all of us, um, we're going to have to wait till Friday to see what the outcome of that is. And that would then give us visibility of what the pipeline looks like from Friday on. Right. But I, I do want to make the point that J&J have gone out and said, look, they are looking at bridging stock from other parts of the world with, with material not from the emergent site that could potentially be made available as a bridging mechanism. So I agree with Alex, we are, you know, if you sort out the pipeline, you can scale up significantly. So we're up to 70,000 odd vaccinations a day. Um, it, it's not where we want it to be as a country, but, you know, 70,000 is better than where we were last week. And I think we need to build on that. But Alex is right, you can only build on that if you're in a vaccine unconstrained environment. Mm. And uh, Dr. Crisp, to come back up, because that is, thank you very uh, much, Stavros, a lot clearer in my own mind now. And Dr. Crisp, 
the Section 21A issues, uh, please can you respond to those as a potential constraint here for the private sector to, to partner in the rollout and also the 10 million dose offer from Pfizer? Yeah, thanks very much, Michael. So no, just to first of all say that um, Safros is quite correct. We're all working very closely together. All the various companies involved uh, in trying to secure bridging stock are busy and um, uh, you know that's that's very useful but until we get the release of the stock that's involved with the, the potential contamination of the active ingredients that is not going to be in large quantities but at least it would help us to get going so the it's a section 22 a 15 permits you're referring to I presume which are the pharmacy council permits permits which uh, any site must have in order to be able to handle a schedule 4 uh, medicine, which uh, these, this vaccine is a Schedule 4 medicine, and they have to comply with the Pharmacy Council as the regulator for the storage of the pharmaceuticals, the management of those pharmaceuticals, the accounting for the disposal, etc., etc. There has to be a supervising pharmacist, the ratio of pharmacists to people who are administering. They're not allowed to have a supervision across provinces, all kinds of conditions. So if any pharmacy or company or occupational health service or even the public sector cannot comply with those conditions of the Pharmacy Council, we don't get licenses. Once we've got the license, the permit to operate a, a site, then the, that site needs to be listed on the master facility list of the department. And that's so that we can hold people accountable for what happens at that site, the actual vaccinators, the administration of the site, the EVDS system, the collection of data, the disposal of uh, the equipment, etc., etc. This is all regulatory uh, requirements of the country, and they have been substantially relaxed, but still safe, by the Pharmacy Council and by the department. It is not a constraint on the private sector, it's just a cooperation on getting the data into the system, and it applies to everybody the same. The answer to the question on the Pfizer extra 10 million doses is we have not refused them. We never have. And we are quite happy to procure those 10 million doses, but we have to follow the correct procedures on procurement. And we've been working on them over the last 24 hours to make sure that we are able to procure whatever Pfizer vaccines mm. we are able to, to secure. So uh, there's not a limitation on that at the moment, other than that we've got to be clear we have the budget and we followed the correct procurement processes, which I believe is now in hand. Uh, Dr. Chris, I want to come back to the issue on what's happening over the weekend. So you look at the numbers, they really do fall off quite significantly over the weekend. And I'm aware that you've been quoted in a, a, a press article, I can't remember where I read it though, that uh, you know, health workers need, need a break because we're approaching a third wave and we don't want them to burn out. Budgets for overtime are, are constrained. That seems like a, a bit of a thin excuse in an environment where we're trying to get up to that 650,000 that we do have every week. Surely we need to have this as a CONOPS operation seven days a week and we can't take weekends off. Well, yes and no. Some of us do work the whole weekend and every night and it's not sustainable and we do need to give people time off. And healthcare workers have been at the forefront of this now for a very long time and one needs to have an understanding for that. We have been given additional funding from Treasury to provide for overtime in the public sector, but it's not enough to have all sites open every weekend or weekend. So uh, there will be a dip off and until the provinces are able to, and in any case we're in a resource constrained environment at the moment, 
once there's a free flow of vaccine and we're not in a vaccine-constrained environment, then it would make sense to be vaccinating over the weekends. But for now, it wouldn't make sense anyway because we are operating at capacity. So I'm sure there are many moving parts in this potential that starts with making sure we have enough vaccines, enough syringes, enough needles, enough staff, and we are able to pay those staff for the work that they do. There are private sites that are working over the weekend, but we see dip off in their numbers as well, mostly because pharmacies are not all open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And it's largely the Saturday mornings that we see when they are open, where the, the numbers uh, are um, being recorded mm. over the weekends. I, I think that's the reality of the situation at the moment. It's early days, we're in our third week. And once the vaccine constrained environment improves, you will definitely see. Provinces are champing at the bit to double their, um, their throughput, and many private sector are, are hoping to get on, come online and will come online as soon as there's a less vaccine-constrained environment. And, and then just on the issue of load shedding, which is impacting all of us at the moment, uh, offline we're talking about how it's impacting things like virtual events, which we're all doing. Um, how is it impacting the very critical cold chain, specifically with the Pfizer vaccine that needs to be kept at uh, very, very cold temperatures? Yeah, the cold chain discussions are quite a long discussion, but basically what you try and do is keep as much of your vaccine in the controlled environment as possible, where you have backup generators, good storage facilities. Even if the backup generator fails, there's a backup plan to that backup. But clearly you can't have all the vaccines stored in that environment and you need to have it in, at various stages down the distribution chain until they're into the vaccination sites. But what needs to happen is that the vaccines, the amount of vaccine that is at the vaccination site is never vulnerable. So you can't have so much out in room temperature because you can't refreeze and re-refrigerate these vaccines. So you don't take that vaccine out until you know that you are able to to use the vaccine uh, for, for vaccinees who have arrived. So that is why it's important that we schedule very carefully and we, and we have a controlled environment for vaccinating people. All of the vaccine sites also have to have backup cold facilities. And for those that are right in the periphery where we're only keeping vaccine for the day or two days, they can be stored in various ways using dry ice and uh, less vulnerable, uh, the, the stock is less vulnerable because mm. it's going to move through the system very quickly. Um, the health authorities, and that's why we have pharmacists managing this, because they are trained to manage the cold chain right away from the centre to the periphery. Uh, Alex, just to bounce off to you, we've got a, uh, about three minutes left to go. That does sound like uh, this, this could prove a challenge, particularly in the rural rollout, uh, if, you, if you don't have that extent of backup uh, and, and cold chain ability in some of the more remote regions of the country. That's really where the, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine becomes quite critical. It is the vaccine that can be distributed with a, a sort of a more relaxed cold chain support framework. And uh, that's why it's very urgent that the Johnson & Johnson vaccine comes online um, in, in large quantities. Um, and I think it's, it would be important to have some sense and understanding of the production capability and the stocks that have already been accumulated during this period in which we haven't received doses from the South African plants. The, the question is really how much do we have access to? What are the quantities that have been produced to date? What is available? What is going to be directed into the South African environment and not exported immediately? Because um, I can understand that the FDA is going to be quite critical for the exports to the US and to Europe 
for their regulators to approve. But the question really is how much of that is actually designated for South Africa upfront? Because if that is the supply constraint, both rural and urban, then we need to unblock it as fast as possible through having doses available at scale. Stavros? The, Michael, I think the commitment from Johnson & Johnson to the country was they would supply 31 million doses, um, commencing in, in quarter, uh, you know, quarter, the, the current quarter that we're in. So that's the quarter that ends uh, July. And then for the ensuing three quarters thereafter, they would supply the balance until you get to 31 million. Now the initial supply was to be 1.1 million doses um, plus an additional 900,000 doses, taking you up to 2 million. So 2 million is the needed number that uh, ought to become available. Of course, it would have been in the supply chain already had it not been for this FDA issue. So as far as we understand, the 31 million dose J&J commitment remains in place with an immediate supply of 2 million would have been the first uh, the first two consignments. And then when can, when can we have a, a, an, an idea about the bridging uh, vaccines that J&J is now promising? Because this is not our fault. Uh, surely contractually, they are now obliged to come up with, this, with some sort of solution. I, I think you're better off asking Nicholas that question um, because of course government is procuring. Sure, sure. Uh, Nicholas, do you have an idea? Yeah, so we do have an idea and we are in busy finalizing the, um, the, the, the transport arrangements to get uh, some bridging stock in, but we will not uh, approve that, that that flight takes off to bring that stock to us until after the FDA announcement because we want to be absolutely certain that whatever bridging stock we, have got, we are getting is not imported and then still subject to some kind of other regulatory provision that the FDA will impose on that stock. So if all goes well, we should receive that stock on either the 8th or the 9th, and it will be a bridging amount, but it is still dependent on the announcement on Friday night. Right. Thank you very much uh, to all of you. Dr. Nicholas Crisp, Deputy Director General in the National Department of Health, uh, who's also in charge of the EBDA system, along with Stavros Nikolaou, the Head of Business for South Africa's Health Working Group, and Professor Alex van den Heerfer of WITS, EBDS, uh, eventually very delayed shots.